I almost feel like I need to give some kind of disclaimer before we continue on. Um, and um, there's, there's, these are passages of Scripture. Here at this church, if, you, if you're new or if you're visiting, at our church here at Livingstone Calvary Chapel and all Calvary chapels, we, we adhere to a style of teaching called expository teaching which simply means that we go through the verse of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. If you guys have been coming, you know that. And, and the, the main thought behind that is, is, is we keep things in context that way, and we're not taking it out of context to make God's Word say what we want to say. But also, um, we're just not teaching you from the Bible. We're teaching you the Bible. And if, if, if the Word of God, if the Bible is truly the Word of God, which I believe that it is without a doubt, it is, is God's Word given to us, um, it tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that it's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it, has, it alone has the ability to change our lives, to change us on the inside, inside out. And for that reason, it's the most important thing that can be given to us when we come together and study is, is, is to receive God's Word. It's, it, it's, you, don't, you don't need my opinion. My words, my opinions have no ability to change or influence you in an in a, in a eternal way or in a godly way. Um, I may be able to, pastors or preachers who don't teach God's word may be able to manipulate us in our thoughts and our emotions, but never really bringing forth a heart change on the inside. God's word is the only one that can do that. It's the only thing that can do that. And so that's why it's so important to learn the Bible, to be taught the Bible. Unfortunately, from a, from a, from a teacher point of view, you come to these sections of Scripture that seem to be very dry. I'll just use that word. God's Word is not boring by any means, but we're talking literally about the construction of a building, of the tabernacle right here. And, and it's detailed, very, very detailed. I mean, to the, to, it tells us about the size of the pieces of wood that were to be used in the construction and all the different types of materials and the, and the colors that they were and the, the, the kinds of fabric that they were. And, and um, it, it's spoken and then it's respoken and then it's respoken again. And so we go through a chapter of like this, it can be kind of like, okay, I get it. <laughs> Paul's, a, Paul's a construction guy. He builds things. Yeah. Paul, Paul wants to know the sizes of the wood. <laughs> and, and, and there is significance in this, but, but guys, really, we have to, as we go through it, to see all of God's Word is applicable to our lives. And so we go through these things that see to be um, very methodic and very detailed and somewhat dry in their initial reading. We're going we're gonna to go a little bit deeper, as, as we should, because um, the, the, the tabernacle or the temple, which, which will come later, um, we know that there's a spiritual connection to what we find out in the New Testament about us being the, the, us being the tabernacle or the temple where God now dwells. There's this correlation, there's this illustration that we see all throughout this. And that's where, in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, but in my opinion, that's where this chapter gets exciting. And, and, and so I want to try to really draw out some of these things, make some of these spiritual illustrations and connections without going too far. If you read a lot of commentaries, maybe on these kinds of passages of Scripture, you, you get people that make, a, they get teachers and that make jumps that I don't feel comfortable making where they're saying, oh yeah, and this is representative of that, and this is representative of this. And, and nowhere in God's Word do we have anything to confirm that. Not that I disagree with some of those things, but, but without God's Word being the foundation for why we interpret what we read, we shouldn't make that jump. So I want to do that, and we're going to confirm everything through Scripture as we go through um, um, this chapter and read about the construction of the tabernacle and, and look at these spiritual illustrations that apply to our lives. Now, if you've been with us, well, let's, let's just stop right here and pray, and then, and then we'll go into this chapter. Lord, we give you thanks for the ladies in our lives who are moms. Lord, I think of my own mom, and um, I love her so much, and I'm grateful for her, Lord, and, and I know that her prayers for me as a, as a youth and as a young man who had gone astray, that her prayers for me, Lord, is, is what um, were foundational or instrumental in bringing me back to you. And I'm grateful for my mom for that. And Lord, each one of us has been touched in a special way by, by a mom or someone who has been like a mom to us. And, and, and um, we give you thanks for them. And, and um, Lord, you knew what you were doing when you made woman. 
And it would be a lonely place in this world if it had just if you just stopped with Adam. And we know, God, that's why you looked upon all of creation and said, you know, it's good, but this thing, it's not good. We're missing something. And Lord, so for all the ladies in our lives, all the moms in our lives today, we ask a special blessing over them. Lord, we pray that they would be rested, that they'd be renewed, that they'd be encouraged, that they would truly see how wonderful, how special, how precious they are. And Lord, as we, as we consider them, help us to remember, God, that um, whether it's a wife, whether it's our own daughters, or whether it's our own moms, that uh, all of them, first and foremost, are, are your daughters. And so may we love them and cherish them and honor them in that position first as your daughters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know that we've been reading through the book of Exodus. As I alluded to that, and we've been studying about the tabernacle. So this chapter isn't the only chapter that's been talking about tabernacle or tabernacle things. And so, so as we're continuing on, we're getting more of this. And back in chapter 24 is when God had first called Moses back up the mountain, Mount Sinai, in order to give him these instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. Literally, they, they were the blueprints. And um, um, uh, not only just for the, 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 the structure itself, but for everything that was to go into it. And also, we'll find out a little bit later on that God was giving Moses the instructions for the priesthood, too, for the priests who would minister in the tabernacle to the people with these things that were in it. I love, I love Brandon's note last week on the, on the teaching that went up. I don't know if you guys saw that online, but he put on there, was God the first interior designer? <laughs> And, and we talked about the furnishings that went into the tabernacle. And, and when God gave Moses all of these plans, he made it very clear. And we're going to see this again in this chapter. Multiple times it's restated that God made it very clear that everything was to be built and placed exactly as God had shown. Had shown to him. Because the tabernacle was a holy place. Uh, by it, God was fulfilling a promise of, 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 of saying, I'm going to be your people. I'm going, to, excuse me, I'm going to be your God. He's saying that to the Hebrew people. And so it was a holy place because God would come and live or dwell among his people, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, there in the tabernacle. His glory would be manifested and his people would come there to meet with him. God would be living in their camp, dwelling with them, abiding with them. Now back in chapter 25, um, God began by first giving Moses these plans for the ark of the covenant, the Ark of the Testimonians. It's referred to in, in, in many different names, but always, always for the same purpose. And, and, and on top of that, we know that there was the mercy seat. And these two items together were to be placed in the most holy place, into the most holy place uh, behind a veil called the veil separation. And that's, we're going to read about that at the end of this chapter in chapter 26. And then, then he, God, gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle, or excuse me, for the table where the twelve... Uh, loaves of showbread, one representative of each of the tribes of Israel. They would, they would rest there before the presence of God in the holy place on the other side of the veil separation. And, and, and in the last verses of chapter 25, we know and read about God giving Moses the plans for the gold lampstand. And the lampstand had uh, is a menorah. We have one outside on the missionary table there. As you go out, you can see if you've not seen one before. We put one on the on the big screen um, last week so you could see which one we're, what, what it looks like and what we're talking about. But it was an oil-burning lamp. had seven lamps that would come up on, on these seven different or six different branches that came off from the, the main uh, lamp. And um, it was placed inside the holy meeting place, also where the showbread and the altar of incense was. And as we continue on this morning now into chapter 26, we begin to read the detailed plans for the actual construction of the tabernacle, which consisted of a, a fenced outer court where the people would come and offer their sacrifices, where the, the animals would be slaughtered and the, the bronze laver would be there and the altar, um, uh, the bronze, uh, bronze altar was there where the uh, sacrifices were, were burnt and offered to the Lord. And then inside this courtyard was this inner tent um, a place of meeting. It's, lots of times it's just referred to as the tabernacle um, or the tabernacle of meeting. And that's where the, this, this tent-like structure housed the ark and all the other furnishings that we've been reading about. So let's read 
in verse 1, starting in verse 1 of chapter 26. And Heather, in a minute, I'll have you put up that first slide, but not yet. And so in verse 1, it says, Moreover, God speaking, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim, which are angels, and you shall weave them. Then the length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain, four cubits, and every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled together to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn, and on the edge of the curtains, on the on the sleevage of one set, and likewise you shall do on the other curtain of the other curtains of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set, that the loops may be clasped together to one another. And verse 6, you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasp so that it may be one tabernacle. Now, as we begin to go through this, you're going to notice, as I already said, the great detail that's given in the instructions and how Moses was to tell the people or these artisans and the ones who would actually do the building, the skilled men who were filled with the Holy Spirit, to tell them exactly how to do it. There was nothing left up for uh, assumption. It was God saying, okay, do it this way, use this kind of yarn, use this color, weave it like this, put these hooks, all these things, and we see that all throughout this very, very detailed things. And as we begin, I want to point out this for you so you can begin to, begin to get some reference points. Um, uh, we don't usually use a cubit as a modern day of measurement. I don't know if Paul has a cubit tape measure. No? Okay. Uh, I'm probably going to get you one soon. Okay, just so you know. But uh, a cubit is about a foot and a half long as, it, as, it, as the conversions are done. And so you can kind of go through here if you want, and you can do the math in your head, or you can get your, your iPhone out and get your calculator. But I'm going to do some of those conversions for you as we go through and, and study out these chapters, and so we can get an idea of exactly what it looks like. But for a, a better reference, if you want to put that first slide of the tabernacle up, I got a diagram here for you, I think. There it is. A, a diagram of the tabernacle um, and uh, some, some numbers there on the side that kind of identify each of the things that we have talked about, what we will be talking about. And um, for your own purposes, um, I, just so you know, I have uh, copyright privileges to the Logos Bible software. I have purchased it, so nobody thinks I'm trying to do something illegal. But I copied off uh, a bunch of these for you, so and there'll be outside. If you wish to take one home with you, there's about 75 copies, and you can take one home and, and have uh, for your own study and your own reference. Some of your Bibles may have this very same one in the back, but you can, you can get an idea of the overall dimensions of what we're talking about. If you look up in the right-hand corner, it says uh, 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 the, the, the graphic there of an American football field, which is about 100 yards, right? Actually, it's about 120 yards when you consider the end zones. And so you see in that, if you were to lay that over there, about the overall size that we're talking about. It's not a huge thing. And as you can see from this illustration of the tabernacle, the inner place of meeting that I've been talking about, that we're reading about in this chapter, in this chapter where it says there, the temple, um, was a tent. And, and we'll find out that it was a tent with a wood frame. And it has this series, and we're reading about it now in these first six verses of the first one, it has a series of four elaborate coverings, and in this illustration, they're numbered 9 through 12. It says the temple coverings and the curtains, right? 9, 10, 11, and 12. And so and you, and they're broken out there um, kind of in the bottom left-hand corner of that tent-like structure, and they're, they're highlighted by a different color. So there was a total of four coverings that overlaid and made the roof or the roofing kind of a a structure for the actual tent. And in these first six verses that we just read, the first of these four coverings is what's being described. And this covering, as you can, as you can now picture it maybe in your mind, this covering that we're reading about, it could only be seen from the inside of the place of meeting. It was completely covered by all the other coverings. 
And um, as we consider the order for which God gave these plans to Moses, even looking back to the furniture that we were looking at last week, the things that were in it, as God was giving the plans to Moses for the construction of this tent of meeting or the tabernacle of meeting, it's important to point out that the plans for the tabernacle were revealed to Moses in a very particular order. And, and um, I, I love that even every detail of God's Word is applicable to our lives. And, and, and it's in the details that it reveals some really cool spiritual truths to us. And, and, and it wasn't just random. God didn't say, okay, do this and then do this and then do that. He gave the means or the process by which these things were to be done. And in the order in which God gives it is important. Um, um, and it's important to point out because... He started with the interior furniture, which we read about in chapter 25, and then from there he begins working out. And and in the working out process, the first thing we have is this this linen curtain or covering. And it's important to take note of, of this because when we remember that we we who have put our faith in Jesus and in the work that Jesus did on the cross. To save us, it's important to remember because we are now considered the temple of God. There's no earthly structure that God dwells in that's been created by or with man's hands. Rather, we are this dwelling place for God. And so when we keep that in mind, in light of this, this, this order in which God gave for the construction of the temple, it reveals something to us. Because just like God built the tabernacle, from the inside out, right? He also works in us. From the inside out. Us, His tabernacle, His dwelling place. He works in us in the same way, according to the same pattern, from the inside out. As we know, the Bible tells us that He's come to live inside of us. When we put our faith in in God, He says, I'm going to come dwell with you. I'm going to commune with you. I'm going to abide with you. I in you and you in me is what he says. And in doing so, God made some promises that he had made some promises in the Old Testament that he fulfilled through his son Jesus Christ when God came to live inside of us, when God said, I'm going to work in you from the inside out. And and one of the things that he does is just like God's glory was revealed or manifested in the most holy place there above the mercy seat, we know that us as the tabernacle, God says, I'm putting my spirit inside of you. And, and along with this spirit being inside of us, then we are told that as a result of that, there's a new nature that we receive. His spirit, a new nature, right? The spirit man who, who, who goes on to live, the spirit man who, who wars against the natural flesh, the natural man. And in doing so, God also said that he gives us as working on the inside outwardly is that he gives us a new heart. A new heart, and, 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 and with all of these things, His Spirit, a new nature, and a new heart, He shapes us into the new creation that we become. And this was something that God foretold of in the book of Ezekiel. And He said in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27, He says, I will give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll pour my spirit, I'll pour my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, I wanted to spend a second, I don't know how much time I'll take here, but I want to spend a second just talking about that because it's an amazing thing. And it's contrary to to what I was taught and 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 often what I'm even as a believer, what I'm thought into. Or, 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 or deceived into believing by saying who whispers into my ear or in my own heart that's deceitfully wicked. And what I mean is, is that um, growing up, I grew up in a very religious home. And you know what religion does? Religion, in the negative sense, puts a focus on the outward, on the behavior. And sometimes we think that's how God works or wants to work in us or what God expects from us is that that the outer man would look a certain way. But that's not how God works. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was on the earth, there was a whole group of these people who looked good on the outside, but on the inside, it said, Jesus said to them, you are 
death. You are an, a, a tomb, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. He was speaking to the Pharisees, the very religious leaders. And so even in our Christian walk today, we can lose sight of the fact that God does the work and He constructs us from the inside out. And the means by which He does that is His Spirit, His nature, His new nature that He's given us, and, 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 and His... Um, uh, the, the, uh, so his new, our new nature, our new heart, and his spirit. And these three things are the means by which he changes us on the outside. It's not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. And the reason why I point that out, because it's very easy for us to fall into this legalistic mentality of going, well, I have to be, as a Christian now, a certain way outwardly, rather than just focusing on the inward things that God sees clearly that no one else sees. And, and, and it can be a very evil trap to begin to think that my behavior is somehow, it, it, that my behavior is somehow the, the, the measure of all that, that needs to be done. Because there are a lot of people who, who, who have an appearance of good, but have not been regenerated on the inside. And unless God's doing the work on the inside, there's no hope for any of us. It's not just about being good outwardly. It's about being changed inwardly. It's about receiving this new nature, receiving this new heart where God takes that heart of stone, literally, which is dead, which is hard, which is cold, and He takes it out and gives us this heart of flesh, something that is soft, something that is alive. And God wants to do that continually. And so when there are things in our lives that we see that outwardly aren't lining up with what we know God's Word says or with what God speaks to us about, the focus shouldn't be on then doing what's outwardly right. The focus should be within submitting ourselves inwardly to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to God, allowing His Spirit to rule and reign in us. Here's the thing that I can tell you, and I know this to be true for sure, is that often... Not all the times, but often when I was, before I gave my life to Christ, I, be I believed in God. I knew what God expected, but I could not do those things, even at times when I wanted to. And even the Apostle Paul, after he came to give his life to Christ, testified to the struggle that we all face when he said, you know what, the things that I want to do, I, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, this, that, these are the things that I do. He was looking outwardly at his behavior, at the failures, at the mistakes, at the, the flaws, if you will, in the natural man that had been constructed as a result or had fallen as a result of sin, that, that sin nature, a fallen nature. And then in that passage of Scripture that Paul goes on, he goes, oh, who will deliver me from this body of death, from this building of death? And he says, praise be to God, my Savior, Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say these words. He says, through all, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the, and the point is, 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 it's the inward thing that God's revealing here as we see the, the method of the construction that needs to have the attention God's the one that does the change in us. And as a result, my behavior reflects the inward work that God does, that God is doing as I submit myself to Him. Now, according to verse 1, if we look at this, the first layer of the construction that covered the wooden structure of this meeting place, this first one, this, this, this linen curtain, had artistic designs, it says, woven into it of cherubim, angels. And these designs on this covering would only, as I would have mentioned this earlier, they would have only been visible from the inside of the meeting place, inside of the tabernacle. So, so as the priest would go into the tabernacle, past the screen that, that was the door that entered in uh, on the east side of, the, of, the, of the, the structure, everywhere he would look as he went in, he would see these angels that were woven into this veil or this, these curtains all around him. And, and you know what the awesome thing about this is? Is this another picture of what heaven's going to be like? You know, people want to know, what's heaven going to be like? And the Bible gives us, there's not like one chapter on, this is what heaven's going to be like. But all throughout God's Word, we're given illustrations or pictures or, or insights into what heaven's going to be like. And this veil, this curtain with all these angels is one of those things, considering that in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, it tells us that the throne room of God 
is filled with angels. It, 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 says, it says literally that angels encircle, encircle the throne of God. So all of heaven is filled with angels. It says numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. It says who are, who are continually singing the praises of God. And I don't know about you, but that's a pretty awesome thing to imagine and picture in my mind. Go and read Revelation chapter 5 and see the songs that they're singing and what they're doing. It's pretty cool. But in making this first curtain that covered the meeting place, we see in verses 3 and 4, if you'll look here, that the whole covering was made up of a total of, uh, by a total of 10 individual pieces. And if we do the conversion uh, of a foot and a half per cubit, what you find out is, is that each, each of these 10 individual pieces were 42 feet long and 6 feet wide. Then five pieces were sewn together, which made five on one side and five on another, two coverings, and these two coverings were 42 feet long and then a total of 30 feet wide. And then the two pieces, these, these two sections of 42 by 30, were sewn together to make two coverings that, that, that are to make one, one, one covering, or excuse me, they weren't sewn together, they were joined together to make one covering, and, and, and um, they were done so by a system of loops. That's what we read here. Pieces of fabric or yarn or thread that was woven into it, that were sewn onto it, onto the fabric, and then we had the 50 gold clasp to link these loops from one set of five that were sewn together of the curtains to other set of five curtains that had been sewn together. And it's important to note that at the end of verse 6, God said, he gave the reason for this. And, and um, this is another important verse. In verse 6, God said, Do this so that the tabernacle may be one. Do this so that the tabernacle may be one. And in light of this um, detailed, very detailed method of sewing and then in, 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 in joining these curtains together, there's a spiritual principle, the first spiritual principle that I want to bring forth. It's illustrated here. And it's, it's the principle of unity and diversity. And that's all throughout Scripture. That there's unity and diversity. And that may seem like a very culturally or politically correct thing to say today. And I have, I, God does not mean it in that way at all. But there is a truth, a spiritual truth in regards to unity and our diversity that's being illustrated. And this principle is spoken of many places throughout the New Testament where we who are who are who are who we who are, who make up the church are compared uh, to to um, at one point in First Peter as the living stones, hence the namesake of our church, who are being built up into a spiritual house, right? Spiritual stones, living stones, but also we're compared to a body, a human body. A body that has many different members. Paul writes and he says, speaks of, the, of some, some of those pieces of the body are unseen. They're inward, which are, would be our organs. There are others outwardly, whether it be a hand, a mouth, these kinds of things. But the point is, in all of that is in this unity of spiritual truth and unity and diversity is that we as one body, as the, the, the church of God, the body of God, that we are made up of many members and we're joined together in order to do the work of God just like these pieces of fabric were. And it's in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 5, where Paul writes about this, and he says, he says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. And so just like each piece of the fabric uh, each piece of the covering, these different curtains, these ten curtains were joined together, some sewn, some linked by the, the loops and the, and the clasps, have, were put together to be one so that, the, uh, so that the tabernacle itself might be one, right? So too are each of us supposed to be joined together in order to accomplish the will and the work of God. And it's, it's another case for some of the misguided notions that are out there today where people say, I can have a relationship with God and I have no, I have, there's no need for me to go to church. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go to the mountains and this is the best place to have church. 
And I would say, yeah, there's really good reasons to go to the mountain and to worship God. But Scripture is very clear in telling us and teaching us over and over and over again through illustrations like this and even more clearly direct ways saying, we have a need for one another. And we're incomplete. We're not whole as the people of God unless we're coming together for the same purposes of God, to do the will and the work of God. Now, as we read on, we'll see that there are three other curtains. You can leave that first illustration just up there as we go through for a little bit, Heather, and then I'll tell you when to put the next one up. But as we, as we read on, we see that there were these three other curtains. There was the veil curtain, and then there were the three other ones that were laid over this one. And if you look there in verse 7, we pick back up, and um, it, it begins to detail this. It says, you shall also make, verse 7, curtains of goat's hair, to be a tent over the tabernacle, you shall make 11 curtains. Okay, so this time it's a little different. Not 10, but 11. And the length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the width of each curtain, 4 cubits. And, and the 11 curtains shall all have the same measurements. And you shall um, couple 5 curtains by themselves and 6 curtains by themselves. And you shall double over the 6th curtain at the forefront of the tent, and you shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtains that is the outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain on the second set. And you shall make 50 bronze clasps, and put the glass clasp into the loops, and couple the tent together that it may be one. The remnant, verse 12, that remains of the curtain of the tent, the half curtain that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And that's the reason for the extra length of this particular covering. And a cubit on verse 13 on one side and a cubit on the other side of the curtain of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and, it, and on that side to cover it. So both on the north and on the south side to cover it. And you shall also make a covering of ramskin dyed red for the tent and, that, and, and a covering of badger skin above that. So, first of all, the second covering is what we're reading about here, and it's made of goat's hair. It was different from the first, as it was, the first was, was of, 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 of a delicate linen, and this one was made of goat hair. It was not delicate at all, and it had no artistic images woven into it. But it served a very practical purpose. And, and, and I love that about our God is that in His plans and in His purposes, you know, there's, there's a beauty and a holy and a majestic aspect of it too as we enter into God's presence. But there's also for our lives today in, in, in regards to God's will and God's plan as He's constructing us into the, to the, to the, to the men and women that He's created us to be, right, from the inside out, that there's a very practical application for it as well. In what God does. And in this instance, as we see, there was no woven image and no delicate linen um, with, this, with this woven goat hair. We see that the practical, there's practical purpose is in that the, the goat's hair, as it was woven together, it would have been a very thick and, and coarse curtain that, that was being um, constructed. Some people, as I've read through some things, said it would have been, if you can imagine, like felt. That, that would maybe be something equivalent to it. Now, even though this covering was also made by sewing multiple pieces together, the same as the first, we see that one piece was made by joining uh, together five curtains, and the other piece was made by joining together six pieces of this fabric. And, and all of these pieces together were larger, as the first was 42 feet, but this one was 45 feet long and still six feet wide. So once these two sections were then coupled together, this time by uh, bronze clasps, not, not gold like the first, uh, and then laid over the, the, the inner covering, there was this extra six-foot piece that would lay over the back portion of the meeting place, and then an extra three-foot of length that would hang down um, about a foot and a half on either side of the fine linen that stretched down on either, either side. And the purpose of this, as you can imagine, the practical reason for it was to hide or to cover the artistic linen, the more delicate thing, and, and, and make it completely, also completely unobservable from the outside. You could not see 
the, the, the linen curtain that was the first unless you were inside the tabernacle, the temple of meeting. And this was important because remember, in, in Hebrews chapter 8, guys, it tells us that the inner part of the meeting place was an earthly copy of heaven and of God's throne room. So because it was hidden from beneath this dark, thick covering, all that was in it, including the linen that covered it, the one with the angels on it, um, this earthly heaven, if you will, the shadow or a copy of the things that were in heaven, it remained hidden. This second covering, along with the other two, hid everything that was on the inside. And it was hidden to everyone except the priests. Who, by the way, entered in through the door of the tabernacle. And in light of this, we're given another illustration, an illustration of how heaven can truly only be seen by God's priest and only by those who have come in through the door. Right? And when we consider um, entering through the door that gives access into heaven, I think it's important to remember the words of Jesus. It's one of the seven great I am statements that Jesus made about himself. Not only did he say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me, he, he clarified that by saying in John chapter 10, verse 9, he said, I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and will find pasture. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul wrote and said, he said, through Jesus alone we have access to the Father, the door. And so as this earthly copy of a heavenly thing, of heaven was here on earth, God was making it very clear there's only one way in and there's only one person that can go in, one type of person that can go in. And in regards to the issue of heaven being this exclusive place, it was an exclusive place, the tabernacle, where only the priests could go, the Levitical priests. They're the only ones that could enter into it. But we need to remember that this requirement has also been fulfilled by Jesus for us. For those of us who have put his faith, our faith in him. Because in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which says that Jesus is precious. This is the first part that is important. It says that Jesus is precious to us who believe in him. For lots of reasons. But specifically, Paul goes on. He says, Jesus is precious to us who believe in him because he has made us, listen, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God so that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So the spiritual illustration holds true into our own lives today that, that we can't enter into the presence of God. We won't be able to enter into heaven. No man, no woman, unless they come through the door and unless they've been made a priest by their faith in Jesus Christ. All of these things were represented there in the Old Testament with the tabernacle for the Hebrew people and for anyone who would, who would look into it. Now, there's really only one verse that speaks about these last two coverings, and it's mentioned here in verse 14. And other than, the only thing we know is that one was made of ram skin, and it had been dyed red, and the other one was to be a covering of badger skins. And, and with both of these coverings, it, believed, it was believed that all the hair had been, had been scraped off or removed, so it was much like a, a, a hide, just a piece of leather. Uh, and, and, and obviously there's no beauty with these coverings as they serve the practical purpose of, of being water-resistant and, and um, as an outer covering for the holy, the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting. Furthermore, I mean, you can imagine now, with all of the layers on there, with all four layers of these curtains laid upon one another, that, that no sunlight, which I mentioned last week, there would be no way for any natural sun, outer light, to get into the tabernacle, into this holy place of meeting. And the only light that would be inside there would be from the golden lampstand that we read about in chapter 25, where it's described in detail. And, and because this lampstand was fueled by oil, now think about it, this lamp that gave the light, the only light in the tabernacle, because it was fueled by oil, which is symbolic of God's Spirit, we see how True enlightenment, the world talks about this all the time, and many religions talk about how, they can, how you can be enlightened, but true enlightenment can only come from God. And that's revealed in this, in this 
depicted for us in, 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 the, in the tabernacle, in the temple. No outside light, no enlightenment. The only, one, only way is to receive from God through His Holy Spirit. And God's made it clear that He currently does this through His written word for us. We are enlightened through God's written word. And this is why passages of Scripture like Psalm 119 verses 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. But here's the cool thing. That's what God's doing now. In the future, God says He's going to do a different thing to enlighten us in regards to a holy city that's to be built, a new Jerusalem, because there's coming a time when God, He tells us He'll make all things new. All things new. And His written word will no longer be the lamp that guides us. Rather, it'll be His living word. Jesus, the word that became flesh, is what we're told. The Son of God. He came flesh to dwell among us. And this is according to Revelation chapter 21, where it tells us about this great and holy city, the new Jerusalem, it says, that will descend out of the heaven from God. And it tells us that this city has no need for the light of the moon or the sun to shine, no natural light shining in. Why? Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, is its light. Verse 15, we continue on and we'll read hear about the actual temple and it says for the tabernacle or excuse me the tabernacle you shall make boards of acacia wood standing upright 10 cubits shall be the length of the board and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board two tenons shall be in each board for the binding one to another and thus you shall make for all of the boards of the tabernacle and you shall make the boards for the tabernacle 20 boards for the south side and you shall make 40 sockets of silver under 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, it's the same. There shall be another 20 boards, and there are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For as far the far side of the tabernacle, westward, and this will be opposite of the entrance of the door, the veil there, um, the screen, excuse me, for that was used for the door. It says, you shall make six boards and you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. So you have, you have 20 on each side, six across the back, and in the corners on the back there was these two additional boards that kind of held everything together. And they shall be coupled together at the bottom, and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring, and thus it shall be for both of them. They shall be for the two corners." Um, let's read on down to verse 30. So there shall be eight boards with the sockets of the silver, 16 sockets, um, sockets, two sockets under each of the boards. And you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on the sides of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle, for the far, far westward side. Then, verse 28, the middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards to the, from the end to end, and you shall overlay the boards with gold and make the rings as holders for the bars and overlay the bars with gold, and you shall raise up the tabernacle according to the pattern which was shown on the mountain. All right, you can put up the other illustration. It's, it's kind of pixely, but it's the best one I could find that kind of describes what we're talking about, and you get an idea there of the 20 boards on each side, the north and south side. The, the one in your bottom left-hand corner is the, would be the veil to the entrance or the screen to the entrance, and then the back wall, six boards with an additional board in each corner to bind the, 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 the two corners together. Now, I want to point out, as you can see here, that the actual boards we're reading about are what made up the outer walls of this holy tent or meeting place. And each one of these boards, when you do the conversion, measured 15 feet high and two, two foot three inches wide. They were made of acacia wood, just like all the other wood that was to be used in the construction of the temple or the tabernacle and, and all of the, the furnishings that were in it. And each one of these boards, now think about it, they were overlaid with gold. That's a lot of gold. And the north and the south walls of the tabernacle, 20 boards, as I mentioned, six more boards to the back, two corner boards went across the backside. In verse 27, it tells us each of these boards 
if you guys can kind of picture it now, each of these boards were coupled together at the top by a ring, some kind of clasping system there, and then there were five golden bars that ran horizontally um, um, through another set of rings on the outer part of the walls. And you can see there that four of these bars ran on the outside of the walls, and then the fifth bar that was made of the acacia wood and put it to gold, it, it ran through the middle of each one of these boards, the middle one, connecting them all together at the center of the board. So there was a hidden board, a hidden bar in the, in the, in the middle, in the inside, that ran through all the walls, just like the four bars on the outer side. It was very secure once it was all together. And each one of these 48 boards, 20 on each side and eight in the back, the two corner boards, Here's the cool part. It says they were set in sockets of silver. And another passage of Scripture tells us that each one of the sockets, there was two under each board, right? Each one of the sockets was uh, one talent of silver in, in weight. And um, what the, the silver sockets did is they really acted as a foundation, much like a, um, well, like a, uh, a cinder block that was made out of solid silver, Okay. That's what they were. They sat down on the ground, and then the boards rested on top of them and acted as a foundation to keep the walls from coming in contact, literally to keep the tabernacle from coming in contact with the ground. Now think about that. We're called the tabernacle. And in this illustration, in this construction, God said that the tabernacle was to not touch the earth. It was to rest in silver. Silver separated. And this is important to point out when we consider in regards to the law and the sacrificial system, the metal associated with redemption and payment for sins is silver. Always. For example, in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 15, it says, if a person commits a trespass and sins in regards to the holy things of the Lord, then he shall be brought to the Lord or, or then he shall bring to the Lord as his trespass offering a ram without blemish from the flocks with your valuation in shekels of silver according to the shekel of sanctuary as a trespass offering. And there are other examples of this, of silver being a, a, an illustration or a, a depiction or picture towards redemption and, and, and sin. And, and it's all throughout the book of Leviticus where the law is recorded, but also in the book of Numbers. And I like this passage in, in Numbers chapter 18 in verses 15 through 16 that also illustrates it because it says this. It says, Everything that first opens the womb of the flesh, which they bring to the Lord, whether it's a man or a beast, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem. And the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And those redeemed of the devoted things you shall redeem with one month old according to, the, to your valuation for five shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And that's just thinking about the actual weight of the shekels so it's compared to the, the temple tax shekel that was to be used. So when we consider how silver, this is, this is where, where it begins to the application into our lives, because when we consider how silver was used as an offering of redemption and also for the payment of sin, and at the same and, and that the same metal is what was used to separate the tabernacle from the dirt of the desert floor, we see another spiritual illustration being made that points us to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Literally, the work that Christ did is the silver that separates us. In that, Jesus, who became our sin offering and has redeemed us, the Bible says, literally purchased us back from the debt that we owed. He has separated us over and over and over and over again, the Bible tells us, right? He has separated us and also keeps us separated from this world, which is passing away. He's our insulator. He's our redeemer. He's our sanctifier. And in doing so, it says that we who have become the temple of God, we're told, have been given a heavenly citizenship. We're no longer implanted in this world. We're in it, but we're not of it. And like Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, he said, we're not of the world, and through the truth of God's word, we are now being sanctified, literally kept separate from this world. It says, as we eagerly await for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
There's no longer any roots to keep us here. And in light of this wonderful truth, the Apostle Paul, I'm going to have to end with this this morning. We'll get to the veil separation next week, the end of this chapter. But the Apostle Paul, if Jan and Justin come up, they, he wrote in, in Philippians chapter 3 about this, guys. And, and this is what he says in light of that. Okay, Picture the temple, the tabernacle that we're describing here, these beautiful pieces of, of, of overlaid gold pieces of, of, of construction material. Imagine trying to go to Home Depot and, and load one of these into the back of your truck, right? But this is what God says we are, this ornate thing of beauty that also serves a very practical purpose. All the pieces constructed from the inside out. He says, even all of these things, they're not to touch this earth. Silver, the redemption, the price, the work that Jesus did separates us from it. And Paul, as a result of that, guys, in Philippians chapter 3, as we eagerly wait the return of our Lord and Savior, he says this. He encourages us to do this, to forget about the things that we've left behind. And, and it doesn't mean that you should just forget where God brought you from, but those things that were behind before we came to Christ, before we were deemed, when our feet were deeply planted into the, the dirt of this earth and the things of this life, the things that, that our conscience still brings up and, and, and just makes us go, ah. And Satan uses to still condemn us. He says, Paul says, forget about those things that were behind the things, he says, that we've been separated from, this life and the things of it that are passing away. And he says, reach forward to the things that are ahead, pressing forward to the goal and to the prize. Where are you looking at? What are you looking at? Are we looking upward, as it says, heavenly minded, our mindset on eternal things? Or is it about the things of this life that we've been separated from? It's clear that, that we need to be looking to heaven. We need to be focusing upon Jesus. We need to remember the work that he's done for us that's broken the bonds that hold us to these things that are passing away, that are going to pass away. Because our citizenship is in heaven and there's a goal to be reached. There's a prize to receive that Christ has already laid up for us. Set your mind there. Guys, we're going to go ahead and pray. We're going to enter into some more time of, of worship through song. Some of the guys and one of the ladies are going to come forward for you all. And, and maybe this morning you're struggling with that. Maybe you're struggling with just believing that you're no longer in this world or of this world, that you're just, that you're just in it. And there's things in this life that still have a hold of you. And you forget that underneath your feet, the temple of God that you are, the tabernacle of God where God dwells, that under your feet is the work of Jesus, the silver that sanctifies and redeems and separates us from the world. If you're in that spot this morning, maybe you need to come up and receive prayer and be renewed and strengthened. And there's lots of other reasons to come up and receive prayer, but maybe that's one of them. So let's pray. Father, I pray, God, for our time that's left this morning, Lord, that we would enter into worship through song and through prayer, God, as we come together to make our requests and our needs known to you. Lord, if anyone here is struggling with those things, God, please give them the courage and the boldness to come forward in faith and to receive prayer, Lord, so that they can forget those things that are behind, the things that you've separated us from, the things that you say no longer have power over us so that we may live victoriously in you. God, we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.